Hey, everybody. Happy Monday. Sports 959 of the fans, fan drive time. I'm Ben Ennis. It is a happy Monday for Blue Jays fans because after going 0-7 against the Red Sox to start the season, they go 6-0. Sweep them at Fenway Park in David Schneider's debut series and then sweep them at home after being swept by the Rangers. And, yeah, we like to analyze sports on this program, um, in this role. We do it with baseball. Sound smart. Talk about things like they make sense, but then you see the last week play out where the Blue Jays look like they're incapable of playing competent baseball in four games at home, getting blown out by the Rangers, and then immediately sweep the Red Sox. And then the Rangers get swept by a very flawed Cleveland team as the Blue Jays back in the second wild card spot day off today. Rangers hosting the Red Sox, Orioles in Houston, Seattle in Oakland. Let's uh, let's talk to Buck Martinez to help us make sense of it. How's it going, Buck? Thanks for doing this. Man, it's going well. How are you doing today? Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a lot better, a, a little bit more uh, even-keeled after the three-game sweep of, of the Red Sox. Um, those weren't easy games, and boy, the Saturday one uh, w- was ugly, I would say. Uh, did you see encouraging signs, though, from the Blue Jays out of that series? Well, one thing, Ben, they, they haven't stopped playing. They're playing hard. They're hanging in there. Yeah, they're not playing very well right now, and they've got a lot of breaks. Even going back to the Kansas City game with Cole Reagans on the mound, and uh, they got two two out walks and then three consecutive wild pitches to tie that game up. And, uh, you know, it's been that kind of homestand. They went 6-4 and four after you mentioned that they were swept in a four-game series against Texas. So 6-4 and four overall is not too bad, especially considering the way they are not hitting. But, boy, the pitching has been terrific. It was again yesterday, and I, I just think that this team, if they can get into the postseason, the pitching is going to be dominant during the postseason and can take them a long way deep into October. Yeah, they they just need to get uh, enough done offensively, which they were able to do in those three games against the Red Sox, mostly on the, on the strength of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, coming alive offensively with, with home runs in three straight, uh, three straight games, including two straight to start that series, had a base hit yesterday as well. We're looking for signs here, Buck, with, with Vlad, and and it's I don't know if four games or, or three straight with a with a home run is is enough to indicate that that he's maybe finding himself. Maybe it was hitting that uh, that that high velocity fastball for a home run on Saturday, just the 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 second fastest uh, pitch thrown to him that he's hit for a home run this season. W- what are you seeing with Vladdy recently? Well, you know. Um... I think we all forget how hard it is to hit. And, you know, Vladdy put up such phenomenal numbers in 2021. Everybody thinks that that's something he's going to do every year. But if you look around baseball, there are ups and downs, even from the greatest of players. And I think Vladdy's learned an awful lot about it. This is a game you have to work at every single day. And, uh, you know, you have to come to quick resolutions and quick solutions. And I think it's taken him a while to understand that he's just a little bit late. He's getting a lot of pitches to hit. and He's not on time. And there's a separation between your front foot and your hands. And your hands have to go back when that front foot hits the ground. And then you commit your swing. I think he was drifting an awful lot. When you drift, you're going to drop your hands and they're going to be very slow through the hitting zone. So I think he's made some adjustments. He's putting in the work. There's no question about it. But it's not something you can just draw up in the lab or you can't give him a computer printout and say, now, if you do this, you're going to get hit. So it doesn't work like that. It's a, it's a human game played by humans, and uh, they have feelings, and they have reactionary times that vary from game to game. And I think Riley is, uh, you know what, he needs two good weeks now, and that's all it will take. Oh, 100%. Yeah, Buck, I, I go back to last season, and it happened a little bit earlier in the season for Bo Bichette, but he was having a very down year into the middle of August and then absolutely turned it on 
for the final month and a half and, and erased the memories of, of his start to the season. I mean, if, if Bo or if Vlad goes off on, on these final 15 games, yeah, a lot of the discourse will, will be forgotten. I, I, I am interested in, in that, in him appearing late on so many fastballs things, because I look at a, a 24-year-old and wonder why. I mean, we saw him late on some, some lower 90s fastballs uh, before he started going on that home run barrage there. And I, I think of, of batters being late on fastballs as they get, you know, a little bit later on into their careers, maybe into their mid to late 30s, and the bat speed starts to uh, to slow down. He's 24 years old, but so are you indicating that there is like a mechanical reason why why he is late on those fastballs, and that is that is something that can be adjusted, or is it a physical thing that's happening to him that he appears late on so many high-velocity fastballs? It's 100% mechanical. There's nothing going on with this. He's not aging early at 24. He's going to be fine. It's just, uh, you know, I always go back and look at Cody Bellinger when he first came up with the Dodgers, and then he was the MVP, and then another year later he was a guy that looked like he couldn't play anymore. And all of a sudden he's made more adjustments, and now he's having another good season with the Cubs. So it's it's, uh, it's always, and you know what? Just think about how much attention other teams put into solving Vladdy. And we're seeing it a little bit right now with David Schneider. Mm. After he got that great start, all of a sudden everybody's grinding on David Schneider and things have gotten a little difficult for him. This is a game about adjustments and counter-adjustments. And uh, you know what? There's so much technology, so much video, so much information about what guys are doing and what hits, what pitches they're hitting. That, uh, you know, we used to have to play a two- or three-game series before you could find out what a guy was strong at. And that's just the nature of gaming. There's so much information. And I think another thing that you can really see and it's played itself out dramatically in the American League East, is that so many of these young kids are coming up, and they're not intimidated by playing in the big leagues. It yeah. looks like they've been here forever. David Snyder's a good example. Spencer Horwich is another good example. All those kids in Baltimore, you know, they have been on travel teams. They have played in showcases. They've played in major league parks before they ever become professionals. So coming to the big leagues is just what they expect, and nobody gets rattled and nobody's intimidated. Oh, that's interesting, Buck, because, yeah, the, the Blue Jays have a, a number of prospects who did not make it to the major leagues this year. And I, I've, I've heard time and time again in, in previous conversations with people about how you don't want to call up a prospect too early for risk of them, um, their development being being delayed or, or it impacting their development in a, in a negative way to get a, a taste of the major leagues too early and, and maybe the bright lights impacting them. I, I guess... The counter argument would be that yeah, nobody's intimidated by the major leagues anymore. I'd never heard that before. Is that that's something? Do you think is a, is a real thing? And you know, looking ahead to next year, maybe when Aravis Martinez might be a factor for the Blue Jays. No question about it. And you know what? When you look at Gunnar Anderson, and you look at Adley Rutschman, and you look at um, Ashton Kerstad for the uh, Oakland A's, they they all come up and they do. Uh, just wonderful things that they they expect to do it. And, uh, you know, I asked David Schneider, I said, what have you learned about major league pitching since you've arrived here? And he's been here for over a month now. He said, I realize they are human. Hmm. You know, they're not the guys I saw as a kid. They're not the guys that have the baseball cards. You don't have to hit the back of their baseball cards. You have to hit what you see during the course of a game. And I think that's so refreshing to hear. When I came up to the big leagues, I came up to the big leagues from A-ball. Yeah. And I was so green, it was unbelievable. And, you know, there were guys on my team. Now, listen to this. There were guys on my team I couldn't even catch, let alone hit the other <laughs> pitchers. So it was it's such a different time now. And, and the difference between, um, you know, where they played in college and, and what they've learned throughout the minor leagues is, is so 
small now. You have to finish them up here. There's no question about it. They can't finish themselves in AAA and become a polished major leaguer until they get up here because the competition is so intense. But at the same time, they're anxious for the opportunity. Nobody thinks about, oh, I don't have a chance tonight against Max Scherzer, or, oh, we got no chance against Chris Sale. They're going to make their mistakes too. Mm. And I think these youngsters are well prepared to handle that. Yeah, and, and David Schneider has gone through a bit of a slump too uh, early in his career after uh, the series in, in Fenway and, you know, spent about a week and a half on the bench mostly and then came back and, and resumed w- where he started off with this Blue Jays team. He's going through a little bit of a slump, as you mentioned, recently taking a couple of uh, of called third strikes. He's also hit into a, a, a couple of uh, hard-hit ball outs uh, over the weekend against the Red Sox. You mentioned the adjustments. What What is the adjustment that's being made to, to David Schneider in your eyes right now? I don't, I don't think he's in need of making any adjustments right now. I, I think that he just has to wait out the mistakes. And uh, they've made some great pitches on him. And Zach Greinke kind of carved him up the other day mm-hmm. with change-ups away. And now they're, they're not – you know, Kansas City was the first team that really made a lot of dramatic adjustments on David Snyder. They were the first team that I noticed that started pitching him away, wouldn't challenge him with fastballs because he's so quick inside. So I, I think that uh, that trend's going to continue. I'm sure he'll see that here in New York against the Yankees tomorrow night. But it's all about making sure you don't start expanding your zone because that's his real strength. He's a guy that uh, understands the strike zone. He'll take his walks when the pitch is not there, but he knows what he wants to hit. And until he t- gets two strikes, that's what he's looking for. So uh, Vladdy coming alive would certainly help the Blue Jays. Matt Chapman coming alive would certainly help the Blue Jays. A couple of extra base hits yesterday after he was pinch hit for in the ninth inning for for Kevin Biggio, who ends up getting the single, ends up tying the game on the Dalton Varsho triple, of course, that should have been caught in center field. But, yeah, he gets on base, um, and John Schneider pulling the right strings there. But what goes into a decision like that? This is obviously an established veteran who, in the overall this season, is having – a good year, an above-average offensive year, and obviously a key contributor with the glove as well. Also headed into free agency, Buck. Um, how do you how do you feel that John Schneider handled that situation on Saturday, pinch hitting for the veteran? Absolutely perfectly. He has to trust what he sees during the course of a game and during the course of a series and during the course of a week. And Matt Chapman really hasn't swung the bat well since May. And you know what? He he just wasn't the guy to send up there. And Kevin Biggio has been swinging a hot bat. And Kevin, two things Kevin will do for you. He will take pitches and he will get on base with a walk. And uh, then he'll put the bat on the ball. And he's doing real consistent. He's not uh, a juggernaut offensive player right now, but he's having good at-bats. And, and Matt Chapman and with Merrifield, they're down right now. But, uh, you know, in September, you're not going to make up for five and a half months of baseball. But if you'll think about this now, Don Varsha's had a disappointing first year, and he knows it, and everybody else knows it, but what are people going to remember? They're going to remember the triple hit on Saturday and the home run he hit on Sunday to help the Blue Jays win. The same with, with Merrifield. They're going to remember that little dribble up the third baseline and they helped the Blue Jays win that game, and the same with Chapman yesterday with the walk-off hit. They're not going to remember that he wasn't very good for three and a half months. They're going to remember, hey, he got some big hits when we needed him, and that's what the players have to remember. Yeah. Uh, and you're right, absolutely. Um, we we would have remembered the the base running blunders by both Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. on Saturday if they had not come up with a victory in 13 innings against the Red Sox. Uh, they did, so it, so it's uh, it's secondary. But it has been a, a running theme throughout the the course of the season, Buck, that this this Blue Jays team has has made some curious decisions on, on the base 
past. To what do you do you account for that, or is that just you know everything's magnified because this team is not playing in any blowouts. Every every run is very important for this team, so so we obviously pick up on stuff like that. I think it's a lack of preparation by the individual players. When you get on the bases, you have to recognize what the score is, what run you represent, where the team is in the innings of the ball game, and who's batting now, who's batting behind that guy, who are the guys coming up next. You can't take chances. You have to play it strict by the rules of the game. If you're down by two, you need to get on base. If you're down by one, go ahead and swing. Maybe you can hit a home run. But if you're down by two in the eighth inning, you got to get on base and set the table for the next guy. And you can't run into outs if you're two guys on base and you're still down by three. You have to go station to station until you have a legitimate 100% chance to move up. And I think it's just preparation. What you have to do as a player, look at the scoreboard, Stand on the base and say, okay, we're down by three. I can't take any risks. I, we just got to string some hits together. And it's that simple. It's just preparation, knowing the situation, and being prepared to react to whatever situation that presents. Uh, I want to go back to Biggio for a second here, Buck, because uh, it, it does feel like Matt Chapman is, is going to depart this team for uh, free agency at the conclusion of the season. Maybe not. Who knows? But, yeah, it, it seems like he's going to... Uh, obviously want to cash in, and the Blue Jays probably not willing to, to pay the freight on a, on a guy in his 30s like they did with, uh, with George Springer. And you think about potential in-house replacements, and boy, the way Kevin Biggio has swung the bat for now you know months and months uh, and then played defensively as well at, at third base really has you thinking about him being a factor at, at third base next season. How much of what we're seeing do you think you know, could translate into an everyday Kevin Biggio third baseman in 2024? Well, it's certainly not going to hurt. Uh, whatever he can do at this point and then hopefully into the postseason is going to uh, build his resume for the argument that he should be playing more. But at the same time, I don't think the Blue Jays are thinking about their team next year. And, and if they are thinking about it, I'm sure they're thinking about Elvis Martinez and Addison Barger a little bit stronger about being everyday players. Kevin is a very versatile player, a very good player. I don't know if he can be an everyday third baseman. Uh, you know, you're looking for a little more pop at third base. Uh, defensively, he's worked hard to become a very good defender in many different positions. And he's really done a nice job swinging the bat. But, uh, you know, for somebody like Arelvis Martinez, who I believe has George Bell power, wow. and he has held up his own in uh, AAA. He's uh, 22 years old. And in November, he's a very young guy. And, uh, I mean, the upside, you just can't find raw power like he has. And uh, I think they'll uh, look long and hard at him in the spring and try to determine where he's best suited to help. And Addison Barger's another guy. He's got power. He profiles like Eric Hinsky for me. And I think it's a guy that he could probably, uh, you know, have an impact in spring training and then maybe get off to a great start in AAA and come up midseason next year. But right now, I don't think anybody is really thinking about next year. They want to make sure they get jobs done this year in the last two weeks of the season. All right, let me ask you a question about Elvis Martinez this year. I mean, is there an argument to be made that he should be on, on the, the Blue Jays' now 28-man roster here in September, even if it means not an everyday role, maybe even just as a pinch hitter or, or, a, or a DH? No, I don't think so. 
I think they're in a good situation where they are right now. You know, with Davis here, he could DH from time to time. Spencer Horwich has had some good at-bats on Clement. He could fill in wherever he needs to, and he's been a very productive hitter for him when he gets his opportunity. And I don't know where they would be without the, the efforts and the uh, performance that he had when Bo was hurt. So, um, you know, I, I don't think there's a place for Elvis Martinez on this roster or into the postseason just yet, but his time is coming. Uh, George Bell uh, power potentials. That, that's pretty good, though, Buck. That that that, that is high praise, and he, he's holding his own at, at a very young age in in AAA. Um, Blue Jays at Yankee Stadium to uh, start another important three game set tomorrow night. Buck, uh, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for this. Always good to be with you, Ben. You have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. There's Buck Martinez as the Blue Jays find themselves now firmly implanted in a playoff position in the American League, as we all anticipated after their four-game sweep at the hands of the Texas Rangers last week where they were outscored 1 billion to 1, approximately. Bounce back, and here's the thing. Didn't necessarily play all that well against the Red Sox. It pitched it well, which they've done all season long. And yesterday got key contributions from a couple of guys who have surgically repaired UCLs. And... They took advantage of a Red Sox team that's, yeah, obviously just playing out the string at this point. Everybody's, the thing about baseball is as much as you're playing out the string, you are still battling for the back of your baseball card and your baseball reference page. That's why you don't see anybody actually physically, and while it may look like it occasionally, uh, give away in a bad because those are valuable. Because while baseball is a team sport, it's an individual sport, especially for a team that's not going to the postseason. But yeah, the Blue Jays pitched real well. Kudos to them after, it must be said, didn't score a bunch against the Rangers, but also the pitching let them down with a couple of double-digit run totals against. And yeah, some of the higher leverage guys weren't used in that series. Or when they were used, it was already when the game was out of hand. But they only got one quality start out of the four starters in that series. And they got great starts. They just got great pitching against the Boston Red Sox. And it's pretty clear if this Blue Jays team is going to go anywhere, whether that's the postseason or making a bit of a run in the postseason. It's not going to come through winning games 10-9. It's going to be 2-1, 3-2, 4-3. Four runs. Wow. May have overdone it with the 4-3. All right, 3-2. They're going to have to pitch the ball. So that was, I guess, not unexpected to win a series in that manner against the Red Sox. You know what else wasn't unexpected? To get stupid base running mistakes like we saw on Saturday. Again, like this is this is a day of positivity for Blue Jays fans because, man, it was... It was dire last week. I attended two of the four Rangers games. It was dire in the ballpark. Couldn't have gone worse. So, yeah, to be in a playoff spot should feel good. And it does. But, man, how does it keep happening? I don't know if I've talked to Kevin Barker about it. How do you lay any of the blame at the feet of the coaching staff, the manager for all this? Stuff? These, are, these aren't 18-year-old kids and... Vlad's 24 and what Bo's 25. Like, they're they're young, but they've been in, well, in the case of both of those guys, around professional baseball their entire lives, have played high-level baseball essentially their entire lives. And when you have a situation twice in a one-run game that goes to 13 innings on Saturday, so you got the eighth inning, Bo Bichette on third base with one out, representing the tying run, and David Schneider hits a... Hard hit ball, the right field, eh, medium depth. But when you're not Alejandro Kirk, you have 
an opportunity to score, and maybe you do push the envelope with one out in that eighth inning, but you can't when Bobichet, for some reason, is halfway down the line while the ball's in the air, which makes no sense whatsoever because if it's a base hit, you're scoring anyways, and can't score. And the opportunity goes wanting, and the Blue Jays eventually take advantage of some horrible decision-making the outfield by the Red Sox in the ninth inning to tie it. And then in the 13th freaking inning, where again, you just need one run, you just need to cash the runner from second base with none out. Again, we got Davis Schneider, hard hit ball. It's time to center field. And Vlad is going who the hell knows where with none out. And instead of advancing to third and representing the game-winning run on third base with one out, He's stuck at second base and advances to third on the ground out and then takes advantage of, yeah, an infield chopper off the bat of Whit Merrifield to win the baseball game. Didn't have to be that difficult. I think, obviously, number one, the finger should be pointed at those two players. But I do think, number two, we should be pointing fingers at the Blue Jays' coaching staff and the manager. Because here's the deal. Yeah, no, they should know better. Bo and Vlad, 100%, should know better. But guess what? I know they don't know better. I watched the whole season. I know this team keeps making stupid mistakes. So if I know that, I would figure the guys that are talking to these guys every day also know that. So you know what you should be doing? If you're Louis Rivera and you're the third base coach and Bobichette's on third base with one out in the eighth inning, before the at-bat that is about to take place, you need to tell them the scenarios. Apparently. Apparently you need to tell them the scenarios. You have to tell Bobachet, hey, you're scoring on a base here to hit here anyways. So you got to make sure you're back at the bag. If it's a medium depth fly ball, you got a chance to score. Do, should you have to be required to say that? Probably not with a player as established as Bobachet, but apparently this season you have to do that. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. goes out to second base in the 13th inning, representing the game winning run. Apparently, you have to tell him. Your one job is to get to third base with fewer than two outs. And even if it means you don't score on a bloop base hit to center field because you are holding at second base, that's fine. We still got a chance to score the run without the benefit of a base hit. You have to make sure you get to... Should you have to say that to Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? I would hope not, but that's the reality. You've had to do it all season long. So, yeah, it's obviously number one on the players. But number two, we know how dumb this baseball team has been at times this season. How many stupid decisions they've made on the base paths this season. I mean, if if a season's worth of evidence isn't enough for you, I I, I don't know what to tell you. Anyways, Blue Jays are in a good spot right now, uh, benefiting from, I think, a very flattened talent pool outside of the Orioles and Rays in the American League. Even the defending champs. Honestly, if, if you want to really feel good about yourself, Blue Jays fan, well, one, you just look at the standings and you look at the fan graphs odds and now what? Close to a 75% chance of making the playoffs, according to them, when it was like under 50 at the conclusion of the Rangers series. But also that, okay, they don't control the tiebreaker against the Mariners or the Rangers, who also have seven games head-to-head against each other the rest of the season. So that's, a, that's, that's good. But I think what might be even better is the fact that the Astros get 
the benefit of the doubt because they're the defending champs. They just lost four to six to the A's and the Royals. And the Blue Jays actually do control the tiebreaker against that team. They're only one game back of the Astros if they get unseated atop the American League West. And they're starting a series at home, but against the Baltimore Orioles starting today. An Orioles team that staved off the Rays, clinched their postseason spot, and are likely to win the American League East. Anyways, more baseball coming up after 4 o'clock. When we come back, we got a double dip of Monday Night Football tonight. We're almost through a couple of weeks of the NFL season. It's a Monday, so we'll talk to our pal Peter King of NBC Sports and Football Morning in America. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Week two of the NFL season, almost in the books. We got a doubleheader of sorts on Monday Night Football. A couple of overlapping games. Quarter after seven, it's the Saints and the Panthers. Uh, and then at quarter after eight, it's an AFC North divisional affair. Browns in Pittsburgh to play a Steelers team that got their doors blown off week one against a Niners team that looked like the class of the NFL still might be, but in week two had trouble with a team that was expected to be like right there with the Cardinals amongst the worst in the NFL the Los Angeles Rams, who won week one, blowing away the Seahawks, and then almost, almost blew up everybody's survivor pools with a win over the Niners in uh, week two. Apparently, this is like a, it's, it's a bit of a testing of the waters to see how you, the viewer, respond to a pair of Monday night football games. Um, so we'll see what the viewership is like. I, I'm, I'm guessing it's high because it's the NFL. So a straw poll would probably have the Cowboys and Dolphins in the Super Bowl head-to-head after their impressive 2-0 starts. Uh, not so great for the Bengals and Chargers, though. Here's a stat for you. Well, since 2002, about 1 in 10 teams has started 0-2 and advanced to the postseason. So it doesn't happen very often. The Bengals did it last year. They were the first, though, to do it since 2018. Uh, and again, it was Joe Burrow not playing so great through the first two games last year. I, I don't know if it quite looked like the Joe Burrow we've seen these first two weeks for the Bengals. Let's talk to Peter King of NBC Sports and Football Morning in America. Happy Monday, Peter. Hey, what's going on? Happy Monday to you. Um, so, yeah, is there more reason to doubt the Bengals this season? They pulled off the feet last year and a, a lot of hand-wringing and made it all the way to the AFC Championship game. Is, is anything about this 0-2 start different? I think a lot about this 0-2 start is different. Number one, Joe Burrow is not whole. That's the biggest issue. Um, I had assumed that if you sit out six-plus weeks, by the time you come back from a calf strain, uh, you're going to be okay. But uh, either it was significantly more than a strain, um, maybe it was more of a tear than a strain, but uh, whatever it is, Joe Burrow hobbled out of the stadium yesterday and sure doesn't look really good. 
So uh, this, and again, I want to, I want to uh, put a little asterisk on this, but this looks like the beginning of a bad year for the Bengals. And, you know, because now not only are you 0-2 in your own division, so it almost virtually necessitates that, you know, you're, well, it's very likely you're not going to win a tiebreaker to win your division. And to be 0-2 in your division and then 0-2 also in AFC games for potential tiebreakers down the road, it's just very bad. And so... That plus the fact that the Bengals just are not playing well. And, um, you know, it's interesting. In the first week of my column last week, NFL Next Gen Stats had, um, you know, because every player during a, a football, during an NFL game is outfitted with a tracking device. So they can tell how many uh, steps, how many miles, all that stuff that a player runs or, or, or moves during the course of a game. And this this year in the opener at Cleveland was the fourth slowest average speed that Joe Burrow had ever moved in an NFL game. Mm-hmm. So out of like 50 games or so. So, look, I'm not trying to sound the total alarm and saying that the Bengals are done, but I don't think it looks good for the Bengals right now. I mean, this is obviously, uh, it's uh, hindsight is 50-50, but this was a guy that missed all of training camp, essentially, with the, the leg injury, and it did feel like was being rushed back for week one. Because, yeah, there's only 17 games in an NFL season, but they lost the first two games either way. Now it is truly desperation time, and even like a 50% Joe Burrow has to play week three because you can't go 0-3. Like, in retrospect, was there not an argument to, to to maybe at least not play him week one and and yeah if he was still dealing with some week two because they'd be owing to either way. Well, I think that's we just how can we know that? Right. Did the trainer go to Zach Taylor and say, uh, "I think Joe's only eighty-two percent. We ought to sit him for two or three weeks," or did he say, "No, I think you can manage him. I think he's not a hundred percent, but." I think he's going to be okay. And did he just re-aggravate it? Those are the things we just don't know. But clearly, if he wasn't totally whole, uh, playing him early sure doesn't seem to be uh, a smart idea. But I, but as I say, we just don't know. Uh, so I mentioned that other AFC expected to be playoff team, the Chargers, that is 0-2. And uh, apparently the, the only team to score more than 50 points in the first two games was zero turnovers and still be 0-2, and Brandon Staley's getting heated naturally after an overtime loss to the Titans. Um, he's moved into the lead position amongst uh, betting websites as far as the, the next NFL head coach to, to, to be fired, the first one fired this season. I mean, I, I guess you can't put it all at his feet, but, uh, yeah, that that that's... that's. I mean, if, if you were going to draw it up for a, a franchise that has had some notable uh, uh, foot... Uh, tripping over their own feet. I, I think like the way they've lost these first two games in, in giving up all those yards to the Dolphins week one, and again, you know, not having a turnover and, and, and giving up a bunch of points to a Titans team, that, that feels pretty dire for a guy who uh, I'm sure the fan base is, is, is getting closer to being ready to move off of. Well, I mean, look, here's the issue right now with this team, okay? That 
And again, I think one of the things that we just simply do not know is because, I, I mean, look, I sat with the owner of the Chargers, uh, Dean Spanos, in training camp for maybe a half hour, 45 minutes, watching practice one day. And he's very, very bullish on this coach. He said, I sit in on team meetings. I see uh, how the players respond to him. So I don't necessarily see what the outside world sees. Mm. Now, uh, you know, I think, think when you look at something like this, circumstances can change fairly quickly. And the thing that really worries me about the Chargers right now, uh, and especially it would worry me if I'm the Chargers and this week I've got uh, the Minnesota Vikings. And look, everybody can say, oh, geez, Vikings are 0-2. You should be able to get well this weekend. Well, the Vikings also score like their pants are on fire. Hmm. So I, I I can't quite get the um, I can't quite get the reasoning that people would think. Well, they'll get well this weekend. This is a team that so far this week this year <clears throat> has allowed sixty three points in two games, and uh, other than playing pretty good run defense. Uh, has just gotten absolutely strafed everywhere else. I mean, the the Los Angeles Chargers are allowing a 70% completion rate by opposing quarterbacks, and they're playing Kirk Cousins this weekend uh, in a dome. So uh, I don't think this is the week that the Chargers are going to get well. I think this is the week that, you know, unless Justin Herbert puts up 40, uh, they could lose their third game. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they have to. The Cowboys, the, the bar for offensive success for them is, is much lower. They've given up 10 total points over their first two games against both New York teams and all 10 of those points coming this week against uh, Zach Wilson and, and the New York Jets. And, and Wilson had a, a three-interception game. And, and Robert Salas said all the, the things I, I think you would expect out of him after Aaron Rodgers goes down with the Achilles tear. But... I mean, the the more this goes on, do you do you believe him in 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 his uh, his his public comments? That... Robert Sala Robert Sala is saying what he has to say. Okay. Do you think uh, they'll they'll be in a market for no QB? Way... I don't know the answer to that. I I mean, you would think yes, um, but now the question is: first of all. How much of your resources do you want to spend on a quarterback knowing there's a very good chance that on opening day 2024, Aaron Rodgers is going to be back? Mm -hmm. So you're already going to be without your second-round pick, and you can't trade your first-round pick this year, nor would you. I don't see any – I think it would be ridiculous to trade your first-round pick. The only way you trade your first-round pick – is if the Vikings say, we'll give you Kirk Cousins for the rest of this year, and then it'll be a free agent, but it'll cost you a first-round pick. And I don't think there's any way the Jets would do that because it would rob them of their first-round pick in 2025. The reason that they can't trade their first-round pick in 2024 is that it is the property of a conditional draft choice. 
and uh, that conditional draft choice is how many snaps that uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers plays this year. And so if you know, if you're not positive that he's going to play 65% of your snaps, even though clearly he's not going to, you can't trade that pick. So, you know, the jets are really stuck and I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, If I were them, I'd try to go hard after Gardner Minshew. But then again, the Indianapolis Colts, uh, probably figure they're going to need Minshew because they needed him to win a game in Houston yesterday. Um, so I, I truly don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to have to go get a better option at quarterback than they have on the roster right now in young Tim Boyle. Yeah, no, it, it seems pretty clear. Um, and then this report over the weekend that Aaron Rodgers could potentially be available for, for the postseason. I know you, you did some writing on that in in your latest football morning in America, what do you think the likelihood is that in four months, a 40-year-old who just tore up his Achilles is going to be on a football field? I don't think anybody knows. The only thing that you don't put it past him is because, um, you know, he's got a surgeon who's willing to help him as best he can, try to do everything that he can to uh, be ready to play again this year. That's one thing. And then the second thing is, look, you had a running back who wasn't nearly, there weren't going to be nearly as many resources devoted uh, in Cam Akers to getting him back. And he was declared fit and ready to play at four months, three weeks. So, and, and plus you ask yourself the question, is he even going to be needed in four months? The Jets might not be, might not make the playoffs. They probably won't. The only thing that I would say now is everybody said, well, geez, they're not going to need Rodgers. Well, probably not. Football season's a long season. Weird things can happen. You can't be positive. You won't need him. But I do think he's going to try to come back. It's probably an impossibility. Uh, It certainly is highly unlikely, but he's going to try anyway. Um. So I mentioned that the Cowboys feel like the favorite through two weeks uh, in the NFC because of that defense and how great Micah Parsons has looked. And it it does feel like sacrilege to make the comparison to LT, Lawrence Taylor. But you did it in your column, and you would know. Can, 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 can you do an apples-to-apples comparison here? I mean, I've gotten probably 10 emails today uh, to my column basically telling me I'm out of my mind. <laughs> Nobody can compare to Lawrence Taylor. And, I, and I'm going to answer one of them in my column next week, and I'm just going to say, you know, when LeBron James was growing up and everybody said, well, you know, he's going to be great. He'll never be Michael Jordan. And you'll probably find a lot of people right now who say that Kobe Bryant and, uh, and, and LeBron James are nowhere near Michael Jordan. But that's just those are Chicago Bulls fans. They're either very near or equal to Michael Jordan. Maybe not equal to, but I mean they're they're close. And just because someone was born first doesn't mean there's never going to be another one like him again. And I just see Micah Parsons doing the exact same stuff to offensive lines and to offensive tackles, both in terms of his power rush and his speed rush then uh, this is how Lawrence Taylor played football. So for all the people who say, oh, you know, stop it, idiot. uh, (laughs) No, I won't stop it. Uh, 
<laughs> maybe you saw Lawrence Taylor, you know, on TV. I covered him every football game for four seasons of his prime. Mm-hmm. I know a lot about Lawrence Taylor, and I'm watching a guy who right now reminds me very, very much, right down to the personality uh, and the and the uh, and the cockiness of Lawrence Taylor. Yeah, I think you have your bona fides. Like it's, uh, <laughs> I, I will defer to you, Peter. Yeah, <laughs> that's just me. Um, speaking of bona fides, Bill Belichick has him obviously, and is a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest of all times. Matter of passing Don Shula, but you know he, he's missed the playoffs two out of the three seasons. He's had no Tom Brady. This season has started zero and two. He's hitched his wagon to Mac Jones. He's brought Bill O'Brien back after the disaster at offense last year. Is start is. Is there a chance some of the shine starts to wear off Bill Belichick if this continues in this direction? Well, I think I think the way I look at this is, and a lot of people will say, "Well, look, Lawrence Taylor or Lawrence Taylor, Bill, Bill Belichick uh, can't win without Tom Brady," and there's evidence. The one loss record would suggest that he's a pedestrian coach without Tom Brady. And I can tell you a lot of coaches throughout NFL history uh, who haven't been so great without, uh, you know, without their franchise player, whether it be going back to Paul Brown without Otto Graham and then without Jim Brown uh, when he was. And, you know, so that's, that's the way life is. But in a more pragmatic sense right now, Robert Kraft is in his 80s. He's, imp- he's an impatient man. He does not like to see his team being the third or fourth best team in the division. But I do think that Robert Kraft has to think about this very, very seriously Hmm. in that. Are you going to make Mac Jones any better if he doesn't play under Bill Belichick? Or are you going to give up on Mac Jones and go out and maybe pay a bag of money to get Kirk Cousins in the offseason in free agency. I mean, what what exactly do you want to do? And then are you going to try to get some new young genius on offense to be your team's Mike McDaniel or your team's Sean McVay? I mean, Robert Kraft has a lot of questions he's going to ask himself. If he stays with Bill Belichick, chances are the organization is not going to get blown to smithereens and start over. So I think that is one of the things that he really has to decide. I mean, you, you, you pose it as stay with Bill Belichick. Like I, I obviously it would not be like a traditional firing, but like how, how would a divorce between Bill Belichick and the Patriots look? Um, I think that, Robert Kraft would probably have to go to him and say, listen, I'm going to go in a different direction and I'm going to let you, uh, you've done so much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you that we can do this whatever way you want to do this. Um, And, but, but again, I think this is very, I think it's pretty early to talk about this. Um, because I don't think, like, I think the Jets are going to beat the, or the, uh, I think the Patriots are going to beat the Jets this weekend. Mm-hmm. Now they'll lose to Dallas after that, but I don't think this is a lost season for the Patriots. I don't think they're a great team, mm-hmm. but I think they're a really competitive team 
with really good special teams and a good defense and not many offensive weapons. they got to modernize their offense. Yeah, That's all there is to it. This is an old-fashioned offense, and you've got teams playing with great speed and great physicality with that speed, great speed like the Dolphins, great physicality and speed uh, like the 49ers, and the Patriots don't have either. Yeah. So they've got to they've got to modernize their offensive weaponry, or else it doesn't matter who coaches them. Um, before I let you go, I, I think you you pull most NFL fans, and they would say the surprise of the season has been the Rams, despite the fact that they lost on Sunday. I mean, the, the Niners had to do everything in their power to win that football game against a team that many thought was going to be one of the worst in the NFL this season. They win week one. They they got what a, a fifth round draft pick, uh, rookie wide receiver who is filling the Cooper Cup role rather well. I mean, this is Sean McVay's won a Super Bowl. He's been to another. Might this be his finest job? You know, the president of the Rams, Kevin Demoff, told me after the first game. He goes, "I think people are remembering we got a hell of a football coach um, because we all thought this was going to be a three and." 14 year or four and 13 year, whatever it with the Rams. But I, I just kind of think right now, when you look at who the Rams are, Sean McVay has changed. He has changed this team into one that's a little bit more physical than it has been good for him. He realized that he doesn't have the great skill players and hasn't been able to draft the great skill players. Um, you know, the, the the receiver they have right now, uh, who just is a just a totally totally fascinating story, uh, Puka Nakua, is a fifth round pick, the 177th pick in the draft this year, and the Rams have to take guys like this because they don't have high picks, and they have to take guys like this and make the most of them. So. You know, he's not a speed receiver, but you know what? Cooper Cup wasn't either. In that offense, Sean McVay schemes ways to get players open. So I congratulate him. I do think this is his best coaching job. Yeah, Uh, we'll we'll see where they can go from here. But already they've impressed, uh, expecting them to be one of the worst teams in the NFL and uh, being 1-1 and and almost 2-0, if not for a nice uh, second half by the uh, 49ers. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks again. Okay, hey, no problem. Happy to be, happy to do it. See you, Peter. There's Peter King of NBC Sports and Football Morning in America. Head coach is an important position in an NFL team. Actually, it's the most important uh, when you look at the major North American pro sports, pretty obviously, because you control everything. But you can't do it with Zach Wilson at the helm. You can't do it with, it It seems increasingly, the evidence is supporting, with Mac Jones at the helm. So, as much as, yeah, Tom Brady was declining by the time he threw, what, the pick six at the end of that Titans game uh, in the postseason, ending his Patriots tenure, and, and both he and Bill Belichick were happy to go on their merry way, and they wouldn't frame it as like evaluating each other after the divorce, like pretty clearly, and I guess this was obvious year one when Tom Brady won a Super Bowl, but like pretty clearly, if you had to choose one or the other, and this is not obvious in a sport like football, 
in which the head coach can have such an outsized impact on the game, you would take the player over the coach. Like, I, I think that's obvious. I, I think if you had the choice of Tom Brady in his prime or Bill Belichick in his prime, and maybe it does seem obvious now, but like, yeah, pretty clearly the guy who, you know, didn't have to face the same opposition, I guess, in the NFC South, but and had a ready-made championship contender in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, Tom Brady's done pretty well for himself. And Bill Belichick, I mean, can turn it around. Again, 1 in 10, 0-2 teams make the playoffs. Maybe he'll be the one and the Bengals will not. Like, it's unlikely that you're going to get both the Patriots and the Bengals in the postseason at this point. I think I'd put my money on the team that just did it a season ago, was in an AFC championship game and has one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, But yeah, ugly start for the Patriots in year four with no Tom Brady. When we come back, oh, it's pretty ugly in Columbus right now. As it was less than a week ago that Paul Bissonnette dropped that little nugget on spitting chiclets about Mike Babcock. Yeah. Many people laughed at it. Uh, many people scoffed at it, including the Blue Jackets right out of the gates. Well, yep. yesterday, yep, Mike Babcock was uh, sent packing. Or sorry, he resigned. Yep. We'll talk to our pal Frank Cervelli, president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com next. As the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis. Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Life comes at you fast. Like, one, summer's over. It's over. I mean, not not technically, but it's over. What, three more days? It's over. Hope you had a good one. Uh, And two, it was Tuesday of last week where Paul Bizonette went on Spittin' Chicklets, told his story about the unnamed Blue Jackets player, talked about Boone Jenner being forced to share his photos to Mike Babcock. Uh, Here we are on Monday. And it's uh, the Babcock story has been over for hours and hours and hours. Yesterday, he quote unquote resigned after an NHLPA investigation. Frank Saravelli, all over this thing, president of hockey content for dailyfaceoff.com, joins me now. Happy, uh, happy Monday, Frank. Uh, how was your summer? Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no worries. Uh, summer was pretty good. Lots of time with the fam and recharge the batteries. So good to go. All right, good. Um, we'll hold you to the high standard then. Um, so when did you start to feel like this was the, the way the story might end? Uh, Tuesday evening. Wow. was when words sort of began to circulate it quietly, obviously not in a real public way, that first off, the NHLPA felt like there was maybe more to this story based on some of the calls that they were getting. And then second, once they actually got to Columbus and sort of conducted this so-called investigation and interviewed a number of players, they realized that basically the easiest way to explain it is that Mike Babcock essentially treated some of the vets in a more comfortable way than he treated the younger players. And really not anyone was comfortable with the whole thing. And I also think there's more to it 
than just what Paul Bissonette relayed publicly in that there may have been some other things that happened that really rubbed people the wrong way. Like you mean outside of like phone stuff? Like Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, which is insane to me, uh, Frank, considering the way he departed the Maple Leafs, considering some of the interviews he's done since then, considering the fact that I'm sure this guy is thinking about his legacy, um, right? Like this is a, a, a former cup champion. It's a corm- Yeah, this is a guy that was probably on a Hall of Fame track. Dude, like, it, and it's over for him. Not only is he never getting into the Hall of Fame, he's never going to work again. Did he not understand the stakes here? Like, it's very confusing from his end, or he's just like he's an immovable object. Yeah, I mean, I'm, he's he's not stupid by any stretch of the imagination, so I can't imagine that he didn't understand the stakes. I, I think it's probably just a case of someone that can only operate a certain way and doesn't realize the buttons that he's pushing and the power dynamics that are at stake, either that or doesn't care. Hmm. And I don't know which one's more dangerous, but the point is, in a really odd way... Paul Bissonnette relaying that information publicly probably saved the Blue Jackets a lot of heartache, as as tough as this last week has been. No, it's it's a great point, and and yeah, maybe saving some of those Blue Jackets executives from themselves. You, you have a, a great write up on Daily Faceoff right now. When will the sword fall on GM Yarmo Kekalainen? in Columbus and yeah, rightly pointing out some of the phraseology that came out of the statement from that organization. Um, Yeah. This is not a guy that's like rattled off a bunch of Stanley cups over the last decade here. It's it's pretty unbelievable that, that, that he and John Davidson are going to survive this. And that's essentially what's happened is their owner, John McConnell sent out a statement today backing them, but in a very sort of, um, at this time kind of way, yeah. which was interesting to try and read between the lines. But I think the biggest thing for me is everyone knew that Yarmo Kekalainen was heading into this season on the hot seat. Mm. You know, we don't talk a lot about the Columbus Blue Jackets, but they're coming off of a 59-point season that was 12 points worse than their inaugural franchise season in 2000 mm. as an expansion team. Like, yeah. that's how bad last year was. Yeah after they signed Johnny Gaudreau and Eric Goodbranson and spent 84 million bucks, they were God awful. And so this is a hire that he had to get right. And for Mike Babcock to not make it to training camp opening, it's, it's unbelievable to think that there isn't more pressure. There isn't more out of an outcry for someone that, his teams in 10 seasons, which 10 years is a long time. It's almost half the blue jackets franchise history. Yeah. They have five playoff appearances, five missed playoff seasons, and they've won exactly one playoff round during that tenure. Are there highs and lows? Are there, you know, some, some positive steps forward for the franchise during that tenure? Sure. But to think that, the Blue Jackets were some world beater during this stretch. And and the fact that you can get this kind of hire this wrong and, and still be bulletproof, it kind of blows my mind. And when you look at the totality of, of where the Blue Jackets are at right now, like he's plunged this season into chaos, which should have been a big bounce back year way before they even stepped foot in the building. Well, and the, the other thing, 
I mean, again, going back to the statements which didn't denounce like the 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 methods that Mike Babcock used or defend the players or or any of that. It doesn't he sound thanked him for his professionalism, dude. So this this doesn't feel like an organization that's necessarily surprised by the the, the methods he was using. It was just yeah. Okay, everybody found out, and, and it's unacceptable. I, I guess we got to eat it. It seems like tacit approval, doesn't it? It, do, it does. We, this is exactly the type of guy that we hired. This is exactly what we wanted him to do. That's at least my read from it. And and for the guy that's now hired John Tortorella, and then you skip a guy in Brad Larson, and then go to, to Mike Babcock, if you don't denounce that, support your players, and, and say strongly that, this is unacceptable and this isn't how anyone should be operating in our organization. The only thing I can take from that is we don't like players here. Yeah. Well, and as you rightly point out in the piece, it's not like Columbus is New York city or Los Angeles, or I mean, maybe to a lesser extent, Toronto. Uh, It's not exactly one of the glamor franchises in the national hockey league. Do you believe that this will have a ripple effect uh, effect when it comes to, I mean, again, although I was going to say that Columbus not known for its free agent destination, but yeah, they just signed Johnny Goudreau. But like, is, is this something that could hurt them going forward? I think it just further, it's, it's one more embarrassing thing on a long list for this franchise that has never really been able to get out of its own way. Mm. I, I, in the piece, and, and not to really kind of belabor the point, but... I called them one of the most anonymous franchises in pro sports. And I've mentioned this before, and I get trashed by Blue Jackets fans on social media, mm-hmm. which is funny. But if you were to like take a sort of like casual hockey fan or someone who doesn't really watch, like a big sports fan in North America, and put their logo on the screen and say, name this team, mm-hmm. like I'm not sure that people can do it. Yeah. And when you have a, a situation like this pop up, the reason why the Blue Jackets are anonymous, it's not because they play in Columbus. Like, last time I checked, the Ohio State University Buckeyes have done a pretty damn good job of putting that city on the map. There's no, they, they don't lack for attention in, in the other sports that they play. Mm-hmm. The reason they're not more popular, the reason people don't pay attention to what they do is because they've never been a threat to win. Mm-hmm. They've never made progress and built on the idea that this is going to be a contending team. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of outposts around the NHL that you can say aren't really that sexy, that are hard places to draw players as free agents. Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Buffalo, go down the list. And yet at one point or another, all those places have either had runs of sustained success or have been contenders or threats to win. Yeah. So, Columbus has been around for 23 year, years now. Where, Like, when? Tell me when. <laughs> well, yeah, talking about, like, embarrassments in franchise history, I, I was reminded on Twitter of, in 2010, they had a secondary mascot named Boomer. Do you remember this guy? Who was, like, canceled after a day because he, he, was, he looked too phallic. Do you remember this? Uh, you're going to make me Google him now. <laughs> he's a cannon. So he looks like he's like a great, great cannon, but he has two big wheels. Yeah, you get, it's, it's not, it was not, not ideal. Yeah. So it's, it, so that, he was, he was canceled. Why? Because he looked like a phallus. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I All just right. wanted you to say that part out loud. <laughs> I could have used other terminology, but yeah. I kept it clean. All right. Uh, I, I want to do more on this Babcock thing because it's super interesting to me. 
Uh, part of it is because Marty Walsh is, you know, just starting his tenure at, at the head of the NHLPA. Like, is that part of it? How quickly and how hard they may have come down in, in their evaluation of this situation that they're trying to make an impact with under new uh, leadership early on? Well, I think it was really smart that they did that because it showed some teeth. But I, I really should say that the credit for this actually goes to the players who were willing to speak honestly hmm. to the PA. I mean, think about the initial reaction and the spin cycle that we were sort of tossed through when the podcast dropped last week. Nothing to see here. Move along. Team issue statement. Johnny Gaudreau is at the player media tour. He does his thing with the PR guy sitting next to him, says all the right things. Oh, this isn't a big deal. I never felt uncomfortable. But it took the younger guys on the team, and, and I'm talking like literally like guys that are teenagers, to to step up and say, hold on a second here. This wasn't, this didn't feel right. Hmm. And I think that speaks to first off uh, this generation of players that gets it and and is willing to have their voice be heard and two just the idea that um these like these things should be brought to light now like we're beyond the point in 2023 where it's just like hey hockey culture shut up and take it that's just not that's not how it should be anymore and so it was it was kind of interesting to see the reaction on social media today because a lot of people kind of came after me, even Jake Voracek, who used to play for the Blue Jackets, mm. tweeted at me and said, you know, I hate this, stop it with the cancel culture stuff. And my thing is like, I hate cancel culture, mm-hmm. but I'm, I am for better culture and I'm also for better leadership. Mm-hmm. And if that's the response that you first off, put your team captain and Boone Jenner in to, to basically put his name to the statement, uh, supporting his coach and, and trying to bail out the GM and the team president for their, their shoddy hire. That's an uncomfortable spot to be in. And I I just feel like in an odd way, again, we made some progress here this last week. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Um, Yeah. And I I do think about the Jenner statement who was explicitly mentioned on Tuesday on spit and chicklets, but it was not, you know, it was not a retelling of a text sent by Jenner, but somebody relaying what he saw yeah. Jenner go through. Unfortunate spot to be in. Yeah, that's rough for that guy and for Jenner to be thrown into it and, and then part of the statement. And then I, I listened to Johnny Goudreau on 32 Thoughts talking about it. And, and you know, he, he put on – I bought it. I bought I bought it hook, line, and sinker. Uh, and, it, and it's quite possible that that was his experience um, and that the younger players did not have a similar experience were put in 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 a more pressurized situation the other possibility is though of course that those guys are covering up hockey culture and that they just wanted this to go away and they they actually thought you know they had a pretty good chance with mike babcock as the head coach and wanted to 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 sweep this under the rug and move past it like is there a possibility that there's some some real discord within that blue jackets locker room i think it's possible i also think that what they relayed is is actually the truth Hmm. that and that kind of speaks to the power dynamic that we've it's been hinted at that Mike Babcock seized on in Toronto with the you know the Mitch Marner stuff like you don't try that on the younger guys on the team you don't try that on on Nazem Kadri mm-hmm. you try that on Mitch Marner who's a, a lot younger and hasn't been around and isn't going to say no and that I think is is probably the most disturbing part is that 
if all of these allegations are accurate and true, which based on the fact that Mike Babcock is no longer working there, I would say is probably pretty likely. Yeah. That's, that's pretty disturbing. There, there was this report too, that some either current or former Maple Leafs were, were contacted as a part of this report. Were, were you hearing that, that same stuff? Like, yeah. yeah. That was one of the first messages I got was for, from one of the Toronto Maple Leafs players that this happened to. This exact and thing. Was, yeah. It was saying like, Whatever was relayed on Spit and Chicklets was true, I know, because it happened to me. Wow. Yeah. And that's sort of, when you when you asked me when we first started off the hit, when did you get a sense that there might be some real legs to this? It was that first day, because people were already starting to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, like, unprompted, hey, this, what you read is true. Dude. Don't, like, basically don't get off the scent. I, you know... I wish we knew more. And there's there's guys that are more than willing to 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 go above and beyond bashing Mike Babcock. I mean, yeah, there's no I, shortage of them. No, Mike Commodore is like, yeah, he's he's president of the of the club. I get it, but yeah, and it, it was bad when Mike Babcock departed the Maple Leafs. Uh, like, it's bad for him. I wouldn't say just bad in general, but like, it sounded bad. But honestly, like, I I could see. The, the scenario where it wasn't as bad and, and even Mitch Marner said he apologized and we got by it. And there was a, lo- a lot of Maple Leaf players who, in- including John Tavares, who was pretty vocal in saying he was instrumental in, in you know, my career and, and that part of, of my career. And I thought it was a good coach. Like I, it, it might be way worse than, than even I, I, I think I've been led to believe. And, and maybe, maybe I was just naive. Like how bad could it possibly be? I don't know the answer to that, and yeah. I don't even think it's fair for me to speculate. It's not. I think it's it's possible for it, it to be worse. It's possible for it to not be quite as bad. Mm. Like, I don't think I, – I always – I try and give people the benefit of the doubt because I don't – whenever you read something or hear something, I don't know if anyone is ever really truly as evil as whatever is portrayed. But I think when – some stuff like this follows you around and you get to the next stop after having four years to really sit back and evaluate and, and do an inventory and, and figure out how you're going to fix it and, and move forward and change. You know, uh, I, I really struggle with this because I, I, we're, we're asking ourselves with a bunch of different topics that comes up just in society as a whole. And then also now in, in the hockey space of, when you know how do you determine who gets a second chance and when and and what does that look like and i think the big thing is to me you only deserve a second chance if you've done the work Mm. and i guess maybe the answer is there never really was any work done when mike babcock was skiing and hunting and doing whatever else he was doing while the maple leafs were paying him eight million a year yeah that, that that's a lot um so he was not hurting in the time he was away from the National Hockey League and then still was given a two-year, $8 million contract from the Blue Jackets. And and it's not the most important thing in the world, but I am curious. And, and I, he's probably walking with some money. Dude, so that's what I, I'm, I'm interested. Like, do you have any any uh, any scoopage on, on how much the Blue Jackets are going to have to pay him? Like, I is it the full I amount? If, if I, if I no, were him I and I'm departing in disgrace. Amount, yeah. My understanding was that Essentially, there was some threat at some point over the weekend of, well, if you're going to fire me without cause, like I'm going to be coming after my contract and we're going to have this all play out in court. 
And I don't think anyone wants that. So my guess, it's just a pure guess. I don't have any, uh, any factual knowledge. My guess is that there was some kind of settlement mm. that will be paid out. Um, Spit and Chicklets and Paul Bissonette in, in general, uh, what happens from, from this point forward? This is, again, this, it all started because of a, a story relayed on that podcast. Maybe we still get to the same place and maybe it's the same timeline. Maybe guys do it themselves. I, I don't know, but it does feel like that was the genesis of all of this. It does feel like they're, they're well, kind of was the genesis of this. Yes, for sure. Um, but I, I would say moving forward, we recognize the power of the player's voice, even if it's anonymous, mm. uh, the power in holding people uh, up to account. And also, um, even though, so I have so much respect for Paul and, and actually had a chance to talk to him last week as sort of all this was going on, you know, the courage to stand up and, and back your story when, a lot of people are trying to cast dispersions on it to basically CYA. Um, and I get that too, but to stick with it, I think really says something about like, you know, I kind of kept asking myself as this was all swirling, what incentive does he have to risk his own reputation and his own livelihood on something that isn't true? Mm -hmm. And I could never really get past that part. And the answer is because it was true. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily think of that podcast as like the Newsbreaker podcast, but like I, I guess we got to think differently about it uh, going forward. All right. Well, uh, they've yeah, got go stories and connections and people really talk to them. So there is an authentic voice, you know, despite the hyperbole, maybe that's the toughest part to, to swallow for, you know, how this all went down was the sort of, you know, crude tweets that maybe came with it. But the underlying part of it was you know, good-hearted and good-intentioned. You know what, like, and not everybody's Mike Babcock, but do you think this is maybe a shot across the bow or a warning shot or or, or a, a um, an alarm going off for maybe some other NHL head coaches that, yeah, if, if you do use these tactics that are not player beneficial and rub people the wrong way, that the players are now empowered. They, they know the impact that they can have. A hundred percent. They already knew, I think, based on their play and how they talk about coaches and people that are around them uh, in describing the environment and, and how the season is progressing. Like it doesn't take much in terms of body language or what players are saying to understand when a coaching change is likely coming. So they knew they had some of that, but when it comes to, you know, we we've asked players when it comes to hazing or whatever else might be, that's part of the undercurrent of hockey, sexual assault, whatever it is, We've asked them to change how they act based on a proper workplace environment. It's only fair in this case to then ask the same of the people that are above them on the org chart to, to be able to act in the same way. This is a, like, whether it's on a plane or in a locker room or whether it's late at night on a bus, whatever the case is, this is still a workplace and you, you know, it may feel different. You may not be in a suit and tie in an office, but you, you probably need to be held to the same standard. Mike Babcock is done, right? Like this, this, this isn't, he's not going to get another shot. Is he in the national I hockey? I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly, in some ways, given how much he earned and given where he has been, the pinnacle of the sport Olympics, 
uh, Stanley Cup. I was, in some ways, I was kind of surprised to see him land in Columbus as it was. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was only a two-year deal. I mean, what, who's the last new coaching hire that you've seen? I can't come up with an answer off the top of my head that you only get a two-year deal. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, th- th- this is a guy that just came off, you know, being the bell of the ball, being courted by the Toronto Maple Leafs and getting a near-decade-length term contract. Um, yeah, selling for two years. The Columbus Blue Jackets, of which uh, – He's not seeing a single even preseason game. Shocking story. But maybe it shouldn't be. Zero, zero, and zero record that comes somehow with a blemish. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, Frank, uh, great reporting. And, and again, great story today on, on dailyfaceoff.com. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Ben. See ya. See you, man. Uh, Frank Cervelli, uh, all over Mike Babcock being, I was going to say relieved of his duties. He was not. He said, I'm out of here on my own accord. Except not, obviously. This is a situation that was not going to be allowed to continue even through one preseason game. I mean, I do, I'm like Frank in in that I, I like to give people, maybe not the full-on benefit of the doubt, but I think when people especially are relaying stories like this, there's like a lot of hyperbole, uh, hyperbole that gets thrown in here and intent is, is, like I find it hard to imagine people's intent is to be evil. And maybe it's not as extreme as Boone Jenner saying, hey, we're just, you know, all exchanging pictures of our our families. And Johnny Goudreau saying, I showed him my family and my kids, and he showed me his and his water skiing. And that was like, okay, middle ground there. And then you see Elliot Friedman's report from yesterday. According to multiple sources, one of the most serious concerns was a meeting that occurred away from team facilities that included, quote, several minutes end quote, of looking through a phone. That was beyond the scope of what was initially understood to have occurred. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that doesn't sound like what we heard from Johnny Goudreau or Boone Jenner at all. One, not at the arena. So not, I guess, on airplay or whatever. That that was also one of the stories we heard that the photos were put out in front of everybody. But Mike Babcock saying, hey, give me your phone. For several minutes, let me just scroll through it on my own. Yeah, I don't think that's going to fly in any business, but especially not one where the employees are the product and they're empowered and they make plenty of money. So yeah, Mike Babcock had to go. His entire reputation ruined because I don't think it was ruined. It was not great when he left the Toronto Maple Leafs. I didn't think it was great the way he handled the very young Mitch Marner. I believed everybody when they said that he eventually apologized and he said he had to work on some things and move forward and maybe change his philosophies. I didn't think this guy needed to be canceled in that moment. And I wouldn't call this a canceling. I would call this a firing for all intents and purposes. And, and Mike Babcock's not being canceled off the earth. Hell, I'd have him on the radio show tomorrow. Mike, the, the invitation is open to you to tell your side of things and I wouldn't be surprised at this point, understanding the writing on the wall and how it's so, so unlikely that he'll ever work in the National Hockey League again, that you get a totally unvarnished Mike Babcock with his side of the story. Yeah, it seems really bad. Seems not so great. Seems like Mike Commodore on the right side of history on this one. All right, when we come back, Blue Jays with an off day today. 
Six games against both the Yankees and the Rays to wrap up the season. The Blue Jays firmly, okay, maybe not firmly. How about just in a playoff spot right now? We'll talk to Nick Ashburn, Yahoo Sports senior writer next. The fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. So nothing but scoreboard watching for the Blue Jays tonight. Day off before their first of six games remaining against the Yankees tomorrow. Three at Yankee Stadium, three at Rogers Center. It's nothing but Yankees and Rays in these final 12 games to wrap up the season. Fangraphs has them, uh, by the way, back at 78.3% as far as their chances of making the postseason. They are a game and a half up on the Mariners who are on the outside of the playoff picture looking in. A half game up. On the Rangers, but the Rangers and the Mariners both control the tiebreaker with the Blue Jays. The Astros do not. And the Astros are only a game up on the Blue Jays, but in the AL West lead. But they start a series tonight at home against the American League East leading Orioles. So a lot still to play out here in the final 12 days. And if you can predict how they are going to go, uh, you, you're better than me because the last, mm, what, seven games for the Blue Jays have been insane, up and down. All right, Nick Ashbourne joins us now, Yahoo Sports Senior Writer. How's it going, Nick? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, uh, I mean, the obvious first question is, Blue Jays were bad after those four games against the Rangers. Are they good now? Man, I don't know if you watched that series against the Red Sox and think the Blue Jays have solved all their problems. <laughs> I don't think that's the solution that you come to. Uh, they're in a better spot now, that's for sure. As you mentioned, like the playoff odds have kind of rebounded to where they were before the Texas series. But, I mean, they're kind of the same deal. Like When the pitching is really, really good and the offense does just enough, sure, they're winning games. But uh, on the flip side, I don't think there's really anything about this Red Sox series that tells you something new about the Blue Jays. No, the Red Sox stink. In fact, man, like this is... In, in the American League, it's becoming increasingly clear that there's two pretty good teams and they're both in the American League East and they're the Rays and the Orioles who just played a hot, hotly contested uh, series between the two. It was great, great baseball. And then the Astros are the defending champs, so that, so they get uh, a leg up in, in as, as far as respect is concerned. But like record-wise, everybody else battling for the playoffs in the American League is meh. And, and you know, the Twins, we don't even think about because they've been so home and cooled out in the Central. But, sure, maybe the Twins. But, like, it feels like the, there's two good teams in the American League and they're the Orioles and, and Rays, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I think the Astros are sort of, as you say, a sliver above the Blue Jays, Mariners, Rangers, triumvirate there. But the record doesn't really say that. So, you know, the Astros, you mentioned before, like the Blue Jays have the tiebreaker against them. If the Astros were to run into just a bad patch for whatever reason – then they could easily fall back into the pack. I do think just in terms of quality of team, they're a little bit up there, but that's what you get when you have this expanded wildcard format. Like you get a lot of not super inspiring teams fighting for the playoffs. And we can argue about whether that's good for the game or bad for the game, but that's the reality. Like it used to be that it was really only the good teams, the really good ones that made the playoffs. And that's just not the case anymore. No, it's not. And man, the Astros, I mean, they could have been home and cooled out if they took care of uh, the Royals and A's, who they they 
they lost four of six games to in their last two series, which is is nuts. Yeah, no, the, the, the Blue Jays have, like, the ingredients to be good, right? Like, the pitching is obviously, like, really, really good and, and, and showed how good they can be in that three-game series against the Red Sox, although it's a Red Sox team that's home and cooled out and just ready for the offseason pretty clearly. But, no, the overall numbers for both the rotation and the bullpen are really, really good. And there's, like, on paper, again, enough offense there to to support a really good pitching staff. When the offense is not going great, though, you got to do the little things. That's why there's been so much criticism of John Schneider over the last couple of weeks because, yeah, every base runner, every run, super important to a team that is struggling to score runs. That's why... I, I, I started off the show like talking about the positive and the craziness of baseball that the Blue Jays are back in a playoff spot and how things have changed emotionally after the three-game weekend set over the Red Sox. But I also spent some time talking about that Saturday game and how infuriating this team is with the stupid mistakes. And Nick, obviously, like the 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 criticism should go to the players, right? It should go to Bo Bichette in the eighth inning for, I, I don't even know if he takes off on the Davis Schneider medium-depth line drive uh, to right field. But you give yourself a chance if you're on the bag, and he had no chance because he was halfway down the line. I, I, I criticized Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in the 13th, uh, 13th inning for not uh, advancing to third base. And again, another Davis Schneider deeper fly ball that should have put the winning run on third base with fewer than two outs in the 13th inning, a game that both the, well, this was the same game, a game that they won. But I wonder how much of the criticism in your eyes should go to this coaching staff, the manager for, for stuff like that, because it just continues to happen week after week after week. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to forget that the blue Jays are sort of a veteran team at this point, like yep. because of this bow and Vladdy era, we've always conceived them as this young up and coming team. And sure. Those guys are still young in a literal sense, but they're MLB veterans. You know what I mean? Like Whit Merrifield came into the majors in his mid twenties, for instance, like they'd be the equivalent of Whit Merrifield at like 31. So at a certain point, it becomes less forgivable that these guys are making these type of errors. Now, you know, are they going to happen? Yes. It's easy to be like, oh, well, other teams don't make these mistakes. Of course, other teams make these mistakes. But Mm -hmm. it's really important for the Blue Jays to be detail-oriented right now, especially because they are a bit of a small ball offense. They're a rally offense. They don't hit a ton of home runs. They're below average in hitting home runs. Whether that should be the case or not, that's the reality. So these little mistakes have more impact for the Blue Jays than they are for a different team that has the ability to kind of erase them with those big thumps that the Blue Jays aren't getting from basically anyone except Vladdy right now. Okay, and I'll raise you one more. That this was the, the, the whole messaging around this team, both at the conclusion of last season, the offseason, and then at spring training this year, is that it's going to be a more serious group. And, you know, going back and reading one of your pieces recently, and, yeah, I was reminded of, of the John Schneider quote, in spring training, quote, I think fun is a big part of being good. But this, at the same time, there's a fine line between having fun and being silly. And I think everybody took that as a remark on last year's Blue Jays team, which did seem to have a whole lot of fun, specifically Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Teoscar Hernandez, and Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who seemed inseparable. And lo and behold, two of those three separated from this 2023 Blue Jays. Again, the messaging in spring training, serious bunch. We're not going to make stupid mistakes. Um, Did they incorrectly diagnose the problem? I mean, I think there's something to that. I think there's a good chance that these guys, again, just these are the sort of things you'll never know for sure. You'll never be able to quantify. But I think there's a good chance that these guys, maybe Vladi even in particular, 
perform better when they're looser. I think it's interesting, uh, just the difference between Schneider and Charlie Montoyo, for instance, because a lot of the criticism of Montoyo is like, oh, this guy's laid back. He just kind of lets them do their thing. And they brought in Schneider. It's like, oh, this is the guy who's, you know, he's red in the face. He's got the intensity. He's going to get on these guys. And you see that the result hasn't really changed. And then, you know, does that mean that one or both of them is a bad manager? And you can make that argument. Does it mean that the manager doesn't really necessarily have the ability to make that happen? Who's to say? But it is interesting to me that, as you said, they messaged this. This is a different version of the Blue Jays. This is a different philosophy. And we're going to make some moves that are in line with that philosophy. And it just doesn't seem like that's, it, it just hasn't resulted in what they were hoping for in the women, win and loss column. And even in terms of cutting out these little mistakes. Yeah, and and who knows what's happening behind closed doors, and maybe there's there's some more stern talk. And honestly, yeah, the the job of the manager, at least the front facing part of it, has changed so much, and everybody's kind of similar. Like nobody gets down on their team, which is I I, I guess they they figured the best way to get the best results out of their team. But yeah, no, it, you mentioned the difference between Charlie Montoyo and and John Schneider. So it's mostly a lot of the same stuff that fans hear, though, right? Like, it's neither guy is going to be negative about his team. That that feels like that's the job of the manager in 2023. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. What would the counterfactual look like? What What if he came out every day and he was like, these guys are a bunch of bums. They're talented, but, like, they're not working hard and they're not doing enough. Right. Like, would that be effective? I, I don't know. I mean, like you say, this is, there's probably a lot of study that goes into positive reinforcement versus negative reinforcement. Like things are a lot more scientific than they used to be in this way. And yeah, there probably are a little bit, a few more kind of old school managers who are willing to tear into their guys. They've decided for whatever reason in terms of the Blue Jays case that that isn't productive. And yeah, I don't, I don't feel like we're in a position to say whether that would be better or worse. But I think sometimes when Blue Jays fans see the team continue to have the same mistakes or continue to underachieve in the same way, they don't really care about better or worse. They just want to see something different, and there yeah. has not been anything different. Yeah, and can I say that I would feel better if, like, Jim Leland came out after Saturday's game and was like, we won the game, but, boy, was that some stupid base running in the 8th and the 13th inning, right? Like, again, I don't know what that accomplishes, but, uh, yeah, at, at times it would make me uh, feel better this season. Matt Chapman feeling a whole lot better after the two extra base hits yesterday because it was just the day before that in the ninth inning – the guy who's a pending free agent, uh, Scott Boris Klein, and, and hoping to cash in, was pinch hit for in the ninth inning by Kevin Biggio. Man, w- what do you make of, of Matt Chapman's season, which is, it's April, where he was the best player literally in the American League, won the American League Player of the Month award for April, and then since the calendar flipped to May 1st, so that's basically the entire season, save for one month, he's been essentially what Dalton Varsho has been the entire season. That's been Matt Chapman's offensively since May 1st. What a bizarre season because the overall numbers are not bad. Yeah. I mean, the overall numbers are very similar to last year. Like he's getting on base a little bit more and there's a little bit less power. But if you look at kind of across the board, he's pretty much been the same player. And it's worth noting that the Blue Jays from a win loss perspective got off to a good start in April. And he was an enormous part of that. Like yep. he really carried the lineup. He gave them wins that they banked today as important today as they were back then. And so I don't want to be that person who just sort of tears into a season because he has accomplished a lot at the same time. Like when you're getting down to it and all these games are, they're not must win per se, but like they're that important making a decision like going to Biggio. Yeah. It makes sense. Like based on how the guys have been hitting, not just over the last couple of weeks, but over the last few months, like Biggio 
has been a more reliable offensive option. As you say, going into his free agent year, like going and trying to get that big contract. And after April, people talked about how massive it was going to be. Mm-hmm. That's not a good look. Like it, it really is. And now I don't think people are going to give up on the idea of Matt Chapman being a good starting third baseman in the major leagues. I'm sure he will get that money. But uh, we're seeing things we never thought we would coming into the year. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd be super nervous to, to give him much of any type of commitment, uh, especially if you weren't paying super close attention to the season and we're just looking at the overall numbers. Although, that being said, like kind of the opposite happened with Bobachet last year, right? Where he had this very middling, at best, season into the middle of August where he was bumped down to seventh in the order and then had the the final month and a half to to end all final months and a half ends up leading the American League in hits. Is it like, is it just an order? Like say Matt Chapman started uh, the way he's finished and then had a, a final month where he had his April. Wouldn't we be singing a different tune? Absolutely. I mean, I think the order of events totally changes how people perceive a player's performance and even their skill level, like heading into free agency. If he had come off this massive month where he was the best player in the majors, I think that's something that Scott Boris would do an excellent job of selling to uh, GMs all around the league and the ownership groups. So it does like the end result, as we see is, is sort of the same, but it feels different because this is when they absolutely need it. And we'll see maybe over the next few games he'll come up with some of these big hits as well but it ultimately I guess it doesn't matter that much but that doesn't mean that it doesn't feel like a problem right now when the Blue Jays really need runs yeah they do and and we'll see I mean yeah you're as good as your last game and his last game was really good he had a very important hit so maybe that's uh, the beginning of of things turning around for for Matt Chapman I am thinking a little bit though about 2024 and who plays that position? Because I really don't think, unless Matt Chapman either one accepts the qualifying offer or to the Blue Jays are able to figure out some sort of pillow contract where he can re-enter free agency uh, because he, he's not getting what he expected to, to get. I think he's moving on to greener pastures, and the Blue Jays are looking for a new third baseman next season. I mean, they, they've done the Kevin Biggio thing before. They've they've handed the car keys to him, or at least you know, in a in a platoon role to start the season. Beginning of last season, it was his job to lose, and he lost it to a guy that was eventually at the All Star game in Santiago Espinal. Baseball is so strange because that, <laughs> that feels like a million years Absolutely ago. Wild. <laughs> it's so stupid. Anyways, uh, Kevin Biggio uh, now looks like the guy the the, the most optimistic Blue Jays fan would have said he is, or the guy that man. I'm old enough to remember 2020 in a season that I guess we shouldn't really pull too much from. But, like, there were times during that weirdo 60-game season where he was the most reliable offensive weapon the Blue Jays had. Where are you on the current state of Kevin Biggio? Yeah, I mean, you know, even when he came up as a rookie, 2019-2020, like, through those two seasons, he was very much in the Vladdy Bo him conversation. Now we all knew he was a little bit older. He didn't have the pedigree. But in terms of production, he was right there with those guys, and he looked like, a future centerpiece. Like I don't think he's going to be that guy necessarily, but there's a huge difference between where he is this year and where he was in 2021 and 2022. And, you know, I think even 2020 a bit, like the quality of contact with him is so much better. And that's huge because he strikes out a lot. Like that's a reality of his game. So if you strike out a lot, you need to make good contact or else you're really going to have a hard time. Even if you walk a lot, which he does. And also just by having a little bit more pop, a little bit more thump in the bat, it dissuades pitchers from just piping fastballs to him, which has been a problem with him too at times as well, where pitchers are just so aggressive with him because he doesn't present that threat. 
And for months now, he really has not like he's hidden bomb after bomb after bomb here, but he's presented a real threat in terms of it's not just walking is going to be the way that he's going to hurt you. Does that mean he's a, a presumptive platoon starter next year? I don't know if I would go that far necessarily, but I think you're way more optimistic about him today than you would be at any time in 2022 and probably for the vast majority of 2021 as well. Like He is fulfilling his promise as that guy who might not necessarily have a starting spot that is attached to him, but he kind of plays as needed through the lineup based on who has a day off or who isn't a good matchup for the starter. And so I can really see him as that guy who, again, maybe isn't in that opening day lineup, but ends up playing like 120 games because there's always someone moving in and out and he's so versatile. Uh, Spencer Horowitz has had a nice little start to his major league career. He's not starting every game against right-handed pitching uh, against Nick Pavetta. He was not in the lineup. He did eventually pinch hit. It was a, a George Springer DH day. And I know Kevin Biggio hasn't played any left field this season. And you know what? Dalton Varsho maybe is, is finding it because he, he hits the home run yesterday. Should the Blue Jays be trying to force Spencer Horowitz into the lineup? Whether that... I know people laugh at me when I talk about him playing left field, but he played like 200 innings in AAA. I guess he it was the worst 200 innings in the history of minor league baseball because every time I bring it up, people say it's not like it's a non-feasible uh, idea of him playing left field at, at the major league level. But this is a team so dire for any offensive contribution. And again, I don't know if Spencer Horowitz is a major league player. The process seems pretty good, and the results have been there in his limited time as a major leaguer. Should the Blue Jays be trying harder to get him into lineups against right-handed pitching at least? I don't know if I'm bending over backwards to do that. Like he, undoubtedly it's been encouraging, you know, his first, you know, 35 plate appearances. So we don't have a huge sample on him. And, and he was great at AAA to his credit as well. I think he has a little bit of that Biggio problem where he relies a lot on walks, but then when he actually swings a bat, is there enough ability to punish opposing pitching to make the whole profile work out? And I, I can't speak to whether his innings in left field were truly a disaster or AAA. It doesn't seem to be that they, you know, that they really value having him out there. Like I would rather on a given day have Varsho out there and know the defense is good mm-hmm. and roll the dice with the offense than kind of force Hort in there. For me, he's sort of a, yeah, he's a bench bat, a guy you can throw in once in a while. And maybe he gets hot and he forces your hand and changes the calculus on that. But he hasn't done enough in terms of, you know, making incredibly powerful contact or, you know, he's, his BABIP is high, he's kind of in balls fall in. He's someone who's interesting and maybe the time will come for him to play a little bit more, but for now I'd rather have Varsho in the lineup. I mean, is this the, the Varsho that you expect offensively? Like, is this the guy that in the range of outcomes, did you think this was likely that he would have this type of season? Do you think this is him going forward? You'd have to believe he should be a little bit better than this going forward. There's maybe a little bit too much optimism about him offensively heading into season. Like I know a couple of projection systems had him with, you know, sort of 32, 33 home runs. And that felt like a lot based on his history. He's more of an, you know, an, an average hitter with great defense, which is a it was fantastic package overall. And I think a lot of people were projecting growth for him and, you know, we he went the other way. So now it's ended up being a big disappointment you can live with Varsho at the bottom of your lineup the way he is, but it's clearly not what you wanted and what you traded for. Like he's sort of closing in on being a two war player. That's fine. But I don't know. Next year, I think you would expect him to be more like an average offensive player as opposed to below average. And maybe those dreams of him really taking that next step forward. Uh, there's a little bit harder to imagine that happening now, but 
there's enough in what he's done. Like it looks similar enough to what he did in 2022. It's just sort of a worse across the board. And some of that is the Roger center home stat weirdness that we've yeah. seen with so many blue Jays players that I'm not willing to say based on this season, like, Oh, Varsho is a below average offensive player. He's Kevin Pillar. That's just what it is. I think there's still a little bit more in the bat than that. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. The Roger center weirdness is one thing. And then I, I keep going back to the fact that 10 of his 27 homers last season were on the first pitch, which led all of major league baseball. It's the same number of first pitch home runs that Aaron judge had for a diamondbacks team that was out of it. Uh, that's weird. Uh, but anyways, we'll, we'll see. Maybe yesterday is a sign of things to come for Mr. Varsho. Uh, Nick, appreciate the time. Enjoy the baseball the rest of the way. No problem. Thanks for having me on. There's Nick Ashburn, Yahoo Sports senior writer. Blue Jays have, I wouldn't say all the ingredients. They got some ingredients. Guess what? Defense is important. Perhaps not as important as the Blue Jays made it seem this past off season. It's not as important if you can't score any runs. Like, scoring, you know, four runs, then it becomes important. Like, if you can't score any runs, and you got a guy in there opening day who's your cleanup hitter, who's got a 650 OPS that's bad, then defense not as important as you prioritize. But, yeah, defense is important. And come postseason, it'll be important. If you can scrape together enough runs, that's what's... All they really need, and I think Chris Bassett actually had a quote to this ilk in his most recent start for the Blue Jays in the Red Sox series, um, that they just need like two guys really going at the same time. The way this team can pitch the baseball, if Vlad has truly found something over the last four games, three straight games with a home run, first time he's done that this season, uh, leading into the first two games of the Red Sox series. Had a hit yesterday. The process looks a little bit better. Took a bunch of walks, too. One of them intentional as well. But if he's now going to be hot, perhaps, I don't know, is it Matt Chapman after his two extra base hits yesterday? Is it Bo Bichette, who I know in an overall sense since he came off the injured list the most recent time, hasn't hit? Seen some balls get into gloves. We've seen some hard hit balls the other way. Like, could they get a couple of guys going real good? And David Schneider, I know he's hit the skids a little bit recently with the strikeouts, kind of part of the package. I, I, I'm not wavering off my David Schneider take. But yeah, could you get David Schneider, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and Bo Bichette all going at the same time? That, that'd be neat. And I don't think out of the realm of possibility. Blue Jays start a series in the Bronx tomorrow in Tampa for three, and then six games to wrap up the season against the Yankees and Rays, and then perhaps more baseball. It won't be at Rogers Center, though. It seems pretty clear uh, as they go into the wild card round if they make the playoffs. All right, coming up next, Blair and Barker as they get you set for tomorrow's big series against their division rivals. I'm Ben Ennis. You know what? I'll be back tomorrow to do another radio program for you. This has been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.